You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are in Revelation chapter 21. So this is the penultimate chapter in the book of Revelation. We've been in this over a year now, and we're nearing the end. We're hopefully going to finish this chapter today. So we are looking at the eternal home of the redeemed. So this is the final conclusion, as we said last week, to basically everything that has gone before, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is the end result, the total drama of human history, as we've seen over the years. This is its intended end. By this time, the old created order has gone. The unbelieving dead have been judged. Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment of all unbelieving through history has happened. That is all done. And here we get to see the ultimate destiny of the redeemed. And as we remember, we mentioned last week, our view of heaven is often incorrect. It's not a sort of spiritual existence floating around in the crowds. The ultimate aim of God is for this earthly embodied existence in a new heaven and a new earth that he will create. Everything bad from the old order, what we know now, has passed. He says that all things are made new. And as I mentioned last week, we only get two chapters, well, really one and a half, actually, when you look at it, dealing with this subject. And that's quite unusual because for me, it's just because I don't think we can really comprehend too much what we're actually reading here. And you'll understand what I mean by that after we've been through our text this morning. It's one of those passages, it's been great actually dwelling on it, studying it and thinking about it, but it is also... I feel like we're just going to read it together and I'll try and explain a bit because it says what it says and it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. We're left in wonder at what God has prepared for us and that is where we'll be by the end of this teaching today. But let's just go through, we'll read from the beginning of the chapter, so redo a bit of what we did last week for the context as we go through. You need these two chapters though at the end of the Bible. This is the capstone. Christ, the foundation stone, this is the capstone, the first and last stones of a building. You need this to finish everything that we read about. This is really to understand why Christ came to this earth, why he died, why he was resurrected, why he wants to deal with the issue of sin. Ultimately, it all leads to this final part of the future. And this is why we must understand it. So let's begin in verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So this was John getting his first glimpse of the new Jerusalem, as it's called. And John uses that imagery of seeing a bride. And we discussed this last week. Looking down the aisle, you see that bride who's adorned and ready. The most beautiful thing, really, in the room at that time. This is the same imagery that's being presented here as John sees the eternal home of the saints. It's as a bride adorned for the husband for that moment. It's a very important scene. Verse 3 we highlighted last week. Probably the most crucial verse in this whole chapter. I'd still say that. It is the simplest summation of Christian teaching on the afterlife. More important than all the details we're going to read today, maybe, about the descriptions of this city, the first thing that's highlighted to us is that God and man dwell together in union. Uncorrupted fellowship, unhindered by sin, unhindered by death, and all those things that go before. This is the final saga of God's purpose for mankind. 
to create an environment where once again God can dwell with his creation without any interruption and any sin. That has always been God's desire. Everything that we read about, everything undergirding the gospel is ultimately to bring us to this point. That's what it's all for and that is ultimately showing you what kind of a God we worship there. At this point there's no more need for a temple. We talked about this, we'll go back into this again this week, it's in the text again. In our age on this earth, God has always needed a temple of some sort to provide a meeting place for God and man. That's what the tabernacle and the temple was, the Holy of Holies, where God would dwell. Jesus Christ was said to be a temple where God and heaven, heaven and earth meet. The church today is said to be the temple. Christ will have his temple in the millennium, but ultimately, as we read here, there'll be no more temple in the new Jerusalem. Christ himself, again, will fill that role. All tears, all pain, all crying, all death, everything associated with all of those things is gone. That's part of the old order. It's passed away. It does not exist anymore. Now, we can scarcely imagine a world like that. It's just foreign. We've got no basis for experience to understand what that is. All of our experience is based in a fallen world, a broken world, where we see these things on a daily basis. But we get to look at Christ, who will be the king of it, and that's how we can imagine what it will be, because it's based on his character. Those who have lived through the millennium at this point will have a better understanding, but still not quite the same. Let's go into verse 5. This is just recap from last week. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, immoral persons, and sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So here, for the final time, we see the voice of God coming from the throne, declaring that what he has just seen, the new Jerusalem descending, and what he's told John, is real. And like I said, this is like the truth disclaimer. It seems too good to be true. This is Jesus reminding John it is, in fact, true. I can testify to that because Jesus himself is the faithful and true witness and he is the king. He has the authority to do that. He is called the eternal one, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Only an eternal one can create and sustain an eternal universe as the home for the redeemed. This is why God has to be in the equation here. The only entry requirement and it emphasises this a lot. It says to be an overcomer, to be someone who drinks from the spring of the water of life. Last week we talked that this is a symbol of redemption. Basically it's talking about those who have placed their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the only way to have access to the new Jerusalem. And then we saw in the text that final verse which is kind of a warning to the reader. Because although we're talking of future things... This book was written in the first century and it's been read by every generation of Christians since and thus there is a warning that those, there are those who will be excluded from this wonderful future and that is those who will die in their sins and it gives you that list there of all those different people of which we would probably place ourselves in one of those, one of those categories as sinners ourselves but if we place our faith in Jesus we're no longer judged for those things we're forgiven and we get there through the grace of God. Ultimately, that's the point here. There are those who refuse to drink from the living water, who avoid the light, who love the darkness, who reject the covering that Christ has offered to them and has been offering for the last 2,000 years. And their ultimate end, unfortunately, will be the second death. So let's pick it up in verse 9 now as we move forward. 
It says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So now we see this angel again. It's one of the seven angels who we've seen previously in the book of Revelation. It's actually the same angel that was holding those seven bowls of wrath in the final days of the tribulation. So go back before the kingdom age into the final period. It's nice here that we get this angel now obviously has a nice message to tell people. He was the one that had the bowls of wrath, which was not nice to read about. But now he also gets this same passage that he talks about the new Jerusalem the future home of the saints. Now, previously in the New Testament, we've seen, and we studied it in Revelation also too, that the term the wife, the bride of Christ, is reserved for the church. That was a term that was used for the church. So people sometimes get a little confused here because they see the term being applied to the New Jerusalem, and people start spiritualizing and saying the New Jerusalem is just trying to be a symbolic picture of the church, and that's one of the arguments that they use. I think that's a bit of a leap and it's slightly misunderstanding the terminology. To understand this properly, why this wife-bride motif is applied to the New Jerusalem, you really need to understand the symbolism of marriage, what it is pointing to in a deeper theological sense. We know that marriage is for this earth, but it's also illustrating spiritual truths. So let's just have a little look at this and then we'll move on. The term bride of Christ it speaks actually of the dwelling place of God when it's applied to the church. And this is the idea of marriage. Just as man and woman become one flesh in marriage, that's the teaching that we find in Genesis, so Jesus and the church become one body through the indwelling spirit, and thus they become the temple in this age. That's how this process works. Now, we've just read in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no need for a temple. In fact, the whole city actually operates like a temple, i.e. the dwelling place of God, but it operates as one where God and man are united so intimately that they are also described as almost as being one flesh, like a husband and a wife. That's the whole picture that is ultimately finding its final fulfillment. And you've seen this marriage motif throughout the Bible. You found it with Israel and God. You find it with Christ and the church. And you found it in a few other places too. And now, ultimately, you find it being applied to the entire city because the entire city is almost as a living union of God dwelling with his people. It houses all of the redeemed at this time who are united so intimately that they are one flesh, one people, one body. And this is ultimately where marriage, what marriage is trying to teach us. So in the New Jerusalem, it is the dwelling place of God with all of his people. And thus the marriage motif is a fit description of what it will be like. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal, crystal clear jasper. So now we start to get our first descriptions of the heavenly city. They are hard to wrap your head around. But I mentioned this briefly last week. I find it interesting how cities become sort of world-renowned through their fame and their popularity. And we all know certain cities. Mankind, like I said, was always looking for that perfect city. Still today, mankind is trying to build the perfect city, the concept of a utopia. We talked about that. Cities in both fiction and legend become so famous that they are associated with everything that goes with the story around them. This is how it should be with the New Jerusalem. And we have to ask ourselves, does it hold that place? And if not, have we been talking about it enough to people? If I said to you, like, Metropolis or Gotham, you'd know the story that goes with them, wouldn't you? If I said Springfield, many of you would know that. Asgard, many of you would know that. Or even 
the Atlantis, the lost city of Atlantis, El Dorado, the city of gold. All of these things are fame of world renown because there's a story and a history and everything associated and attached to them, be it fictional or non-fictional. But we should make sure that the New Jerusalem also has that sort of world renown because it is attached to the ultimate story of stories, you see. And this is one of the things, we don't quite talk about it enough, but it is our ultimate destiny and our ultimate home. We talk about heaven, don't we? We go to heaven when we die. And that's not actually biblical language, really, that. You won't find that sort of phrasing, in, in, you do, but not in the same way. It's more than that. You've got to explain what we mean by heaven. What we mean by heaven is the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, ultimately the place where God and man will dwell together. You've probably just mentioned this to you because it's interesting, but one of the most ambitious cities that's ever being built on this earth is actually being built right now in our time. Have you ever heard of the Saudi Arabian city of Neom? Or Nom, I don't know quite how they pronounce it. If you've heard of this thing, there's a few pictures of it here. So this is going to be the, first, the world's first smart city, as they've called it. And it is like something out of a sci-fi movie. It's absolutely insane when you read about what they are planning. It's a vertical city contained, it's called the line, contained within these two mirrored walls that cut across 170 kilometers of the Saudi and Arabian desert to house up to 9 million people. It's 100% renewable. It's going to have flying taxis, holograms, its own clean water system. It, has, it will have its own mountain ranges with snow and ski in the middle of the desert on there. This is the sort of thing that they're planning. Yet you read a little bit further and you realize that it's a smart city. All data is shared under the complete surveillance of the Saudi Arabian government. It has a $500 billion budget, all funded from the Saudis' personal bank. Tells you a lot. And it's not a joke. This is like, you know, it's not just a proposed project. They actually started digging the trenches for it this month. It's in the process of going. They've already been awarded the 2029 Winter Asian Games to host there. It just tells you who runs these sorts of things, where the money talks in this world for those sorts of things. Now, there's still a lot of problems with it, but ultimately, it's the Saudi Arabian government who are in charge of it. If you know anything about the Saudi Arabian government, I would not want to live there. There were a few people who they had to forcibly evict in order to get the locations across this line. Those people protested. They were sentenced to death and killed very quickly and swiftly. And that's part of the controversy that's already happening surrounding these things. The Saudi government does like to use the death penalty for many things. But when you go into reading about some of the stuff that they're planning, as in the tech, the AI, the integration, this is a the smart city, it's a worrying concept. This is The whole thing's going to be connected to the metaverse and everything's going to be done through the idea is it's almost like a sci-fi movie and the fact that everyone will be plugged in, kind of slaves to the government, but living in this weird paradise in the middle of the desert. It's so odd when you hear about it, but they're deadly serious about it. But however amazing it may look, all the amazing tech that they have on the inside, whatever they end up doing there, rest assured, it will display humanity's ultimate problem in just the same way as everywhere else on the earth. Because on the inside, it will be full of people. That means there will be endless sin on the inside. There will be abominations. There will be immorality. There will be death. There will be murder. There will be crying. There will be pain. There will be weeping. There will be sickness. Mankind cannot achieve the ultimate city that they want on their own. They cannot solve the problem of humanity, you see. Only God can do this. That is why the only perfect city that will ever be, the only city that can be called the holy city, will be the new Jerusalem that we've just read. And that will have to come in the place what we call the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, because only in that world will all these old things have been passed away. 
And this is the idea here. So John gets a glimpse now of what this looks like, and it puts anything that man can conceive to shame. It's hard for us to visualise, but we'll read it. So it's called the Holy City. Now remember, we have the Holy City Jerusalem in a kind of, it's almost just mirroring and picturing what the ultimate New Jerusalem will be like. The whole concept was, and this will come up again and again, you have to understand it, in a temple, you had the Holy of Holies in the very innermost part. It was a small little rectangular area that only one person could go in. That's where God met, and the only way to it was through all these sacrificial processes. But that was the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. Now, the New Jerusalem, the whole thing is called the Holy City because, like I said, the whole city is operating like that Holy of Holies. Okay, the whole thing is where God meets with man, except that there's all the sacrifices and that have been done. And the access is free at this point for everyone here. It is the dwelling place of God. Now, this should be ultimately our true goal. This is our true destination to be with God in this place. And it is the life of faith that will get you there. We call this life, the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, aliens, strangers passing through this world. We've heard all these expressions. They are really true. And what they ultimately mean is that our ultimate city and destination and citizenship is in the New Jerusalem. Now, often we think about it just being in heaven in some kind of mansion that's prepared. Again, that's, it's not quite the full picture of what the Bible teaches. Ultimately, it is the New Jerusalem that we're looking at. But now we are sojourning on this earth, passing through, waiting for that time. Hebrews 11, verse 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was to see for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Finally here in the New Jerusalem, you do get that city whose architect, foundation and builder is God and God alone. And that's the whole picture, the city coming down like a bride made by God adorned for the husband. That's the lovely picture that we get here. John sees this descending from heaven, and we have that imagery. 11, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Having the glory of God. So this is the Shekinah glory. This is what dwelt above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in the tabernacle. It's described as this bright light that led the children of Israel through the darkness of night in the wilderness. It's a radiant sort of brilliance. We see this at the transfiguration when Jesus is transformed and it says he shone bright as white light that no man could really look at it. This is the idea. This is the glory of God. And it is radiating from the entire city. The whole city now is a Shekinah glory, displaying the glory of God. It says the brilliance was like a costly stone, crystal clear jasper. Brilliance is the word that really means. It's talking about a light that's shining through everything. The glorious God is shining through the entire city as a precious jewel. The city will give out this dazzling brilliance, a display of the glory of God. It's really supposed to describe something that is more exquisite than can be captured with our language and our illustrations. The point being that everything in this city, in the Holy of Holies here, will resound to the glory of God. Every single thing. Just as jewels, this is why we see all these jewels. Jewels are just reflectors, aren't they? You see, they don't actually give off light themselves, but when you place them on a, ba a background and then you shine light on them, you get all these dazzling colours coming off them and all these wonderful things. That's the idea here. The city is made out of these sorts of precious jewels and things like that so that all of them can display the brilliance of the shining glory of God coming through it. It's an image that's hard to conceive, but amazing nonetheless. The entire city is doing that for God, pointing that everything will resound to the glory of God. Verse 12, 
It had a, high, a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them there were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So here we see the city is walled with twelve gates, twelve angels stationed at each gate. That in itself must be an amazing thing. Now in the earthly Jerusalem that we see today, it's also a walled city, interestingly enough, but the walls are generally there for defensive purposes. Most walled cities in our earth have been there for defensive purposes, to keep enemies out, because we live in a world still that is marred by those sorts of things. These are not defensive walls. These seem to be an architectural feature adding to the sacred design of the city. They're more like memorial walls. The emphasis on the text seems to be that they are there to memorialise things, and that is why they bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, three on each side. Now, interestingly, it's very similar designation if you think of how Israel was asked to camp in the wilderness around the tabernacle. They'd have ones on different sides. And remember, what were they camping around? Ultimately, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. What's the Holy of Holies now? The entire city. So it's no surprise that you again get these three gates on either side with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it makes an interesting illustration because what are gates? They're entry points, aren't they? It's how you enter a city. It's a way of access. Now think about this. The way into the New Jerusalem was the, the entry point to the New Jerusalem. It was faith in the Messiah, ultimately, wasn't it? John 4 to 22, Jesus said, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews, ultimately, because it comes through the Jewish Messiah. But salvation came through the house of Israel. This is why he chose Israel, specifically the family of Israel, the founding fathers, the 12 tribes. You have to go through them, ultimately, through their descendant, Jesus Christ, to get into the New Jerusalem. So it's no surprise that their names are memorialised around the city. Yet, as Paul teaches, the mission of the Jewish Messiah was not only to call Jews, but also to call Gentiles into salvation too. Ephesians 2, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The apostles were the foundation of the church, and they took the message of that Jewish Messiah to the Gentile world, giving them access, all access, to the heavenly city, ultimately. So you have both of these groups, the apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, memorialised in these walls. And it does remind us that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. The two are not the same, yet they do work together for God's ultimate plan. And this is a good picture. Let's look at verse 15. We'll read verse 15 to 21, because it kind of all goes together. It says, The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width, and he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall with jasper was the city of pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonx, the sixth sardis, seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing them wrong if any of you know better, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, 
each one of those gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now it's very hard to exposit a text like that. You understand that this is basically describing something I believe beyond human understanding but we can take some points from it. Just like Ezekiel the prophet was told in his vision to measure the millennial temple, here again we see the angel with a gold measuring rod. And I think quite simply what we have here is a description that is supposed to amaze us, supposed to make us just sit back and wonder and marvel at what this is really trying to describe. The city is laid out as a square. It's not just flat. Its length, its width and its height are all equal, 1,500 miles it's translated, your Bibles might read older measurements, but that's roughly what it is, 1,500 miles, in each direction. So that's really unlike anything we've ever seen or heard of or know about on Earth today. For comparison, the northern tip of Scotland to the southern coast of England is 600 miles. So it's twice that length, both, in it, both that way and that way. It's twice the length of England and more, in fact. But that's not it. It's not just a kind of flat, two-dimensional city. It's described as being a cube. So it's 1,500 miles high also, too. 1,500 miles high will take you into middle-Earth orbit. <laughs> Just for reference, that's roughly where a few satellites are, are circling the Earth. Now that is, again, something that we cannot really conceive, and it shows us that the new heavens and the new Earth are obviously a vastly different world to what we have here today. You could say we haven't seen anything yet, <laughs> the old expression. I think that is the idea that we're supposed to get from this. And then it says it has a wall around it, and the wall is... 72 yards, it's relatively small compared to the size of the city because, like I said, it's not a wall for defence. It's a memorial wall, I believe. The idea here, and it says also, interestingly, that these measurements are human measurements that are also angelic measurements. It's a very unusual phrase, and I think it's put there to make the point that you might be tempted to read this and start spiritualising it, as man often does, and saying this is not actually saying what it's saying, it's some sort of angelic language or whatever it may be, like people do. <laughs> and I think this is just reminding us, no, John was told to measure it, it says what it says, these measurements are the same for whatever description that is. How this all functions and works, I have no idea. And no one does. There's only one chapter on it in the entire Bible, Every commentary I read has a slightly different take on it, so I don't want to get into the spec speculation about it, but I'm sure we can all agree it is obviously describing something far more wonderful than we can really conceive. The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear gas. Again, we have this concept of jasper coming up, reflecting the glory of God. The city is pure gold like clear glass and the words for pure and clear is the same word there. The concept coming from it is it's free of impurities. There's no dirt in it. And again, that is again, I think, reminding us it's pointing to the fact that nothing in this city is from the old order. There's nothing that needs to be purified more, like often the purification of metals and gold in the Bible is used as an analogy of us being purified or sin being purified from us. The point being here in the New Jerusalem, that process is done and dusted. Everything here is already as good, as perfect as it could ever be. It is the most perfect city and creation that God has ever done for us. It says the 12, and then we have all these precious stones, sorry, that adorn the walls. And a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to go through these precious stones, matching them up with the 12, the breastplate of the high priest and all these different things. The problem is every list that I've read, it's hard to identify these stones, basically because they've changed through the translations from Hebrew to Greek to our language. So everyone's list is slightly different, which kind of tells me that it's probably not the right thing. 
and plus the precious stones are on the names of the apostles, not on the tribes of Israel, so the association with the high priest for me wasn't really there. What is their purpose? Again, not really sure. (laughs) Beauty, magnificence, displaying the glory of God, showing that the value system of this world is very different. People fight and kill and put their whole life into earning precious stones or currency or the value in this world. In the world to come, those things are not thought of like that. They are simply God's creation for his beauty of the city that he creates. We have these 12 gates, these 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold. So this is where the expression the pearly gates comes from. You've heard that. This is actually what it's talking about, the pearly gates. Is this a real pearl? I'm not entirely sure, but it's clearly something that we can imagine is very beautiful. And again, streets of gold, clear. The value system of this world is different. How this is, remember, no man built this. This is a pure building of God. He is the architect and the designer. And we can look around on our earth today and see beauty, can't we? We can look at the mountain ranges and lakes and see, wow, this is a beautiful earth, the skies, the sunsets, all these different things. All of that's going to pale into insignificance, really. Like, it'll be like that, but a million times more. Something we can't imagine. And this is the description that I think we're getting here. And I'm not going to speculate. I'll leave you in your own imaginations to really play with that one. And then we get to verse 22. We get a little glimpse into life in the city here, too. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, remember again, a temple was the place where God dwelt with man. It was the meeting place. In every age, these temples have been with sinful man. That's why access was always restricted through sacrifice. But now in this age, again, there's no specific singular location in a temple in a holy of holies. Everything is this holy of holies. The Father and the Son now are said to be the temple. That's the whole concept. And again, the whole city is open access. The gates are always open. People are there to free, freely dwell with God throughout eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. But notice, it still emphasizes one name, which I love. The name for Jesus given here is the Lamb. Still the Lamb in the created order now that we're talking about, the new heavens and the, earth and the old earth. All the old things have passed away. Yet still, he's called the Lamb. And what does that remind us of, the Lamb of God? It still speaks of his sacrifice for us on the cross, something that happened in the old earth by this time, something that we should remember. The lamb that was slain is how Revelation pictures the lamb often at the center of the throne. This makes the future world where God intended ultimately to bring us all to, where God will dwell in unhindered fellowship. What makes it all possible was the lamb that was slain. You want to talk about how deep, often when we think about the cross, we think it was just for God to get us saved. It was so much more than that. It was God, obviously, to save his people, but also to lay the foundations for a world where we could have unhindered fellowship with God in the new Jerusalem. So it's taking us even further than that, and we often don't think about that. But this is what it reminds us. The lamb speaks of his mercy, speaks of his love, speaks of his grace, speaks of his forgiveness. Wherever the lamb is, those things are brought to our minds, and it seems that we will still be able to remember those things. Everything that has been described in this place, the place of beauty and wonder that, again, we can barely conceive, ultimately is founded upon, still owes everything to, and is possible because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why you see people worshipping the, not worshipping the cross, but worshipping Jesus who died on the cross. We sing of the cross, we lift up the cross, we love the cross. 
A torture element it may be, but it is the thing that God used to sacrifice his son to make a way for us to be saved, to be forgiven, that we could ultimately end up in a place such as this, dwelling with God in unhindered fellowship. And that seems to be, as far as I can understand the Bible, the ultimate point and flow and destination of history. That is where it will all end up. Verse 23, And the city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So now we see here the new heavens and the new earth, they are different. The physical cosmos is different. The city is illumined by the light of the Lamb. Now, it's hard to understand exactly what this means. Again, we can't conceive it. But it doesn't actually say that there's no moon or sun on the rest of the new heavens and the new earth. So remember, it seems to be implying that we have the new Jerusalem, but there's also a whole new heavens and earth. But all it says is there's no need for, the, for light like that in the new Jerusalem. That's a distinction that some people make. Whether it's accurate, well, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. But just there, their light is not needed. The point being that God is the ultimate source of light. God is actually described as being light himself. I think the point being made here, again, is bringing us back to that point of the Holy of Holies. When you go back into the book of Exodus and you study the tabernacle, this tent with the Holy of Holies, it had the holy place and then the Holy of Holies. One thing that you'll notice, this was a tent in the desert. It had no light. The only light was in the outer, the candle, the seven-branched menorah, in the, holy, in the holy place, but not in the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, there was no light whatsoever. It would have been pitch black until the Shekinah glory of God lit it up for the priest to do his work. And that's the same picture that we have being amplified here. The whole city now is a Holy of Holies, and therefore the only light in that city comes from the Shekinah glory of God. And it seems that the whole city is designed to radiate the glory and brilliance of shining light to the glory of God throughout the entire city. And that's the kind of idea that we get here from this. Verse 24, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honour of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is very interesting. The nations. So this clearly shows us there is a societal structure outside of the New Jerusalem too, which is obviously what the New Earth is for in some respects. It's amazing to think about, and again, for the sake of not speculating, I'm going to just stand with what it says. It says, The nations will walk by its light. And what was that light? The light is the Lamb, the Lamb, <laughs> the city itself at this point, and this is really the ultimate conclusion. Remember Jesus said that he is the light of the world and those who follow him should not walk in darkness. And through following him, where is the ultimate destination that he is leading us to? This city where he himself will actually finally, those words, I am the light of the world, will be absolutely fully consummated to their fullest intent, I believe, at this time. Quite literally, he will be the light for the entire city, so much so that all the nations across the new heavens and the new earth will use that light still to walk by him. Everyone will be following him at this point, is what it's getting at here. This is it. It reminds us that our future is to walk by the light of the Lamb. Now, interestingly, that's exactly what we're commanded to do right now, isn't it, still? Whilst it is an expression that one day that will be the totality, really, of everything that goes on, even now, in a world where we are clouded by darkness, Jesus still said, I'm the light of the world, you follow me, you follow the light. 
We have the light of the world. We have his word, too, that is also described as light. And this is indicating, really, that it seems to be we are to live now like we're heading for that eternal home. That's the idea. It's back to John Bunyan's lovely illustration that he has in the Pilgrim's Progress. And it says these kings will bring their glory into it. Quite what that means, I'm not sure. It's probably at least showing that there is universal recognition at this time that all glory belongs to the Lord. He does not share his glory with another. Anything else is given back to him. Reminds me of the 24 elders throwing their crowns before the throne. Whatever we have is from you at this time. We don't know what else that really means. In the daytime, it says, verse 25, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. Its gates are never closed. There is no exclusion to the new Jerusalem for anyone in the new creation. Now, there's no night. <laughs> Quite, again, very hard to understand. We don't have a, something to compare that to. Maybe it's because our bodies, in the glorified sense, won't need rest, which is ultimately what nighttime is for, to help people sleep, because our bodies die without it in this earth. Maybe that's not something that's needed. I just honestly don't know. It's because the light of the Lord is always shining in that city. It's always open. There's constant joy, constant communion, constant fullness of life in the presence of God in that city. And I guess when you're in that sort of state, why would you ever want to go into a state where you're unconscious and not experiencing that? <laughs> it may be something along those lines. That's the kind of thought where my mind went with that. That is what we're having described to us here. Verse 27 is again a reminder. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So this is, again, he kind of jumps out of this future picture that he's describing back to the first century and all of the generations since then to give a reminder to people who are reading this book who might be thinking, wow, this is amazing. It's a reminder that nothing unclean, that is, nothing that is the result of evil, sin, death, things that we know in this age will be present in this future state. They were only present for the reader's who are reading it, us now and those in history, who are either in one of two categories. Those people reading it will either be sinners separated from God or they'll be sinners who are saved by grace. They're really the only two categories. Sinners who are still separated by God and sinners who are saved by grace. If you're saved by grace, you'll be in the New Jerusalem at some point. But it's a reminder here of the seriousness. And you'll notice Revelation does this a lot, talks about these future things, but often comes back to this reminder, like God, the author, is really ultimately saying, I want you to know and understand the seriousness of this truth. You will not access that city if you die in your sins. The only way to access that city is to make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That is the only way to participate in the future of the new Jerusalem. This is emphasised all throughout the Bible. He wants to make it so clear you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of your sins, to be adopted into the family of God, and then one day you will dwell with God in intimacy in the new Jerusalem. God wants us to know that truth. And that is the truth, really, that the church has been commissioned to tell the earth for the last 2,000 years. This is why the Apostle Paul uses the words, I beg you. He goes out into the world saying, I beg you, put your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Accept Jesus Christ as your saviour. You will be forgiven and therefore you will be in the new Jerusalem with him when the time comes. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. 
If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.